0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Tucson, Arizona, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Tucson, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes. Not all of them specific to Tucson. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and today we're continuing with the series we have on improving cash flow. You know, we find ourselves in a market where prices have gone up very rapidly over the last few years, maybe not so much in the last year or so since interest rates have gone on a tear, but interest rates are up a lot and rents are up, but they're lagging a little bit behind what the increase in price and the increase in interest rates have done to cash flow such that cash flow is not as great as it was if you were acquiring the same property a year ago as it is today. And so cash flow has become more important than ever and yet harder to attain than ever and we need some additional strategies to improve on that cash flow. And so this is the series we've been doing on how to improve that cash flow. And we've covered so far a bunch of the different stages of acquiring a rental property or owning a rental property. And I've broken out how to improve cash flow into those various stages. So for example, we covered all the different strategies you can use to improve cash flow or cash now when you're searching for properties, we've already covered that in a previous class. We've covered all the strategies to improve cash flow when you're financing the property. We've covered the strategies when you change the strategy that you're using and when investing, you know, going from short-term rentals to long-term buy and hold or, you know, renting out house hacking or something like that. So we talked about all the different strategies you can change to improve cash flow. Talked about improving the property to do cash flow. We've talked about how to improve cash flow during the stage when you're marketing the property for rent, and we've talked about all the state of the, all the ways to improve cash flow when you own the property. Now we're going to talk about the last section, which is all the different ways to improve cash flow when you are renting the property. So this is all the stuff related to when you're renting the property. So let's jump right into it. I've broken down this stage into five different subgroups. So for example, I have a subgroup for when you add different services, when you add additional services or when you add done for you services. I have a section, a subsection for charging appropriately, billing back tenants for the things that they really should be paying for or tiering rent by credit score or collecting pet rent. You know, things where you are not necessarily charging your tenant appropriately for doing that. I've got a whole section on convenience billing, changing the frequency of when you bill, um, getting them on or off auto pay, giving them a discount for on-time payment versus charging a late fee, and changing the term of when you do bill as another example of convenience billing. Then we've got a whole section on timing, you know, giving them notice starting early to test high rents and renewing during peak season. And then finally, there's a miscellaneous section for making sure that your tenants have renter's insurance. And so let's jump right into those because I want to make sure we get them all covered and I have a few things to say about each one. All right, so let's talk about the group of adding services. And I think these two are related. There's the additional services that you can add to offer to your existing tenants where you can increase your rent. So as a really simple example, can I add a high-speed internet and charge extra for offering that as a additional service to my existing tenants? As just one example. Or... The second one here is done-for-you services. Can I offer them a done-for-them service where they wouldn't have to do stuff anymore? For example, let's say uh, they live in a single family home and normally they would be responsible for lawn care as part of renting that particular property, but we could add a optional or maybe mandatory service for them to have the lawn service taken care of for them for an extra fee. And the extra fee can be more than what the person we are outsourcing it to would charge. You know, there's a little bit of overhead and oversight that you need to do, and a little bit of risk, honestly. You know, that they won't pay or, you know, there'll be vacancy or whatever it is. So you should charge a small premium for offering additional services, additional done-for-you services. But you could do stuff like lawn care or snow removal or house cleaning or, you know, whatever other services that they might find valuable based on, your knowledge of them as your tenants and what they may want, okay? So either offer them additional things like high-speed internet or whatever you're doing there, or done-for-you services. The next group is charging appropriately. I don't know how many, how many times I brought clients out to look at a property where the current landlord is not billing back for utilities you know they're they're renting their properties and they're saying you know water is included in rent or um electricity is included in rent when you could measure the utilities and bill the tenants back separately for these extra utilities so if the, the clients of mine that are looking at these properties, they see that as a way to immediately get higher rents and increase the profitability of their properties. And so if you are one of those people that are not currently billing back for a utility that is being provided to your tenants and you're sort of just lumping it in with rent, you may want to break that out separately and charge that back to them, bill back uh, for the services. And these can be things like things that are already included in an HOA fee, So, for example, there are some neighborhoods around here where the Homeowners Association um, includes garbage pickup as part of the HOA fee. But garbage service is something that typically tenants would pay for. And so I think you could, and and definitely check with your attorney on these things, you know, don't believe me. Uh, But I think you can and should break out the cost of what it would cost them to have the garbage and charge that back to offset some of the expense you have as part of the HOA fee that you're already paying. Uh, to get the tenant to pay for their own garbage service. Or things like in our area, we have a thing called non-potable water where we can use that water in order to water the lawn. However, it's not drinkable water. It's only used for watering the grass and sprinkler systems and stuff like that. And so sometimes there's an extra fee for use of that water. It's usually cheaper water than getting it from the city that is drinkable water. But your tenant is responsible for watering the lawn, and they should be paying for that service. So you should bill it back. Um, another example is electricity. Or if you're already grouping water in, if you only have one water tap coming in, you've got a you know 12 plex. And a lot of times landlords are, are saying, hey, look, the water is not metered individually, so I can't go and charge that. No, I think you can actually prorate it. You can make it so that it's Divisible by the number of units, or by the number of people that live in the unit. You know, talk to your property manager or your attorney to make sure that that's legal in your particular area. That you know, it's justifiable that you could do that. But I think that's completely valid. What about tiering rent by credit score? It's a controversial one in some ways, right? But if someone has a really, really good credit score, might you give them a discount because they are? more likely to pay on time, less likely to have problems with them, um, you know, staying in the property? Or could you say to somebody who applies and you say, look, you know, or normally our credit score cut off is 650. You have less than the 650 credit score, we don't usually rent to you. They say, hey, you know, is there anything we could do? My credit score is only 640. And you say, well, I might be willing to rent to you, but I would need to charge either an extra security deposit or an extra non-refundable fee, you know, kind of a risk premium, or You know, for $50 extra per month in rent, I could um, see, you know, that being a way to offset the credit score kind of rule there. So you can go ahead and average, average, advertise the higher rent for someone who has great credit, and you could tier rent by different credit scores. Now, again, I would check with your attorney. This one seems a little controversial. It's not what I've done. Uh, This one could be controversial, though, as far as tiering rent by credit score. What about pet rent? If you allow pets, first of all, I should say this. I don't believe we as landlords can charge a fee large enough to cover the extra costs, the extra damage that we might see from a pet. I think the extra whatever it is, $15, $25, $35, $50 a month that you might get for charging extra pet rent uh, for a poorly behaved pet would nowhere near make up for the damage we would have if their pet does damage to the property. In fact, it may not even be covered by their full security deposit. So some people will charge pet rent or a non-refundable pet fee uh, in exchange for them having pet or both in some cases. Okay. So can you charge pet rent if someone has pets? It's another way to increase rent on a property. Let's talk about some convenience billing options. You no, know, for example, some tenants get paid weekly or biweekly or monthly. And most landlords offer billing on a monthly basis. However, some tenants would prefer to be charged weekly for their rent. They'd prefer not to have you know a really big amount coming out in the first of the month. They'd prefer to have, you know, um, a certain amount coming out every Monday. And if you just think about it this way. Let's say rent is uh, two thousand dollars a month, and so two thousand dollars a month. Normally, if you charge monthly, you'd be collecting two thousand times twelve, or twenty four thousand dollars a year in rent. But what if you offered the tenant an option? It's their option whether they want to do monthly or if they want to do this new strategy. Um, and you offered to do five hundred dollars every week on Monday instead of two thousand dollars a month. Well, $500 a week, there are 52 weeks in the year. And if I have my calculator out here, let's pull up my calculator. Calculator. So $500 times 52 weeks is $26,000. So instead of charging them $2,000 a month, you charge them $500 a week. They get the convenience of paying weekly if that's how they prefer to pay. And you actually end up increasing your rent by about $2,000 for the year, or you divide it by 12, about $166 more per month on average. You know, if instead of doing that, you could do it also bi weekly, you could say every two weeks, which is when they might get paid, you know, two weeks on the Monday following the Friday payday, give them a chance to have the, the, the money hit the account and clear and everything else. And then on Monday, you auto pay for. $1,000 $1,000 instead of the $2,000 a month, okay? So that's an option. What about auto pay? You know, auto pay could be considered a convenience. And so you could charge a small fee for auto pay. Or if you have problems collecting rent, um, maybe you say, hey, look, there's a convenience fee or a, uh, a, a inconvenience fee of me having to manually accept your checks And process them and you know, sometimes they bounce or whatever it is. And so you could charge a fee for people not being on auto pay. Right. So you could go either way with that, depending on what is going on in your marketplace and with your particular properties as a way to increase income from the properties. And you know, some of these strategies, as I think about it, some of these strategies are ways to increase income, but some of them are just to be paid for the time you're spending doing things that you might not have from other tenants. Right, like if if you had a tenant, if you had tenants that always paid on time, you wouldn't have to worry about charging them, you know, for having to chase them down when they're when their check bounces or you know something got they're late on their payment or whatever it is. So you know, charging a a fee for them manually paying instead of being on auto pay is really just recapturing some of the work you're already doing. It's being paid for the work you're already doing, extra work that you're already doing that if they paid on time would be an issue, if they were on auto pay wouldn't be an issue. Um, instead of offering, instead of having a late fee in your lease, some landlords prefer to offer a discount for on-time payment. So the way that this could work is: let's say um, rent if you pay on time is two thousand dollars a month. However, if you don't pay on time, it's um, you know a fifty dollar or hundred dollar late fee. Well, the alternative way to structure that is you advertise the property, and when they sign the lease, the lease says that the rent is $2,100 a month, not 2,000, but they have a $100 early pay or discount for on-time or early payment. So that if they pay before the first of the month, it's $2,000. If they pay after the first of the month, it's $2,100. So it's not a late fee. It then is, that's what the normal rent is. However, if they pay on time, they actually get a $100 a month discount. And the $100 amount discount amount is the amount that is probably what you would have charged for normal rent if they were going to pay on time, okay? So instead of offering late payments, late, a fee for late fees, late, late payment fee, um, you, you give them a discount for on-time payments or early payments. What about term? You know, we talked about this in another strategy, but can you change the term of the rental agreement? You know, are you going to rent to them by the day or by the week or by the month instead of doing a yearly lease? You know, the, the biggest example, this most common example is short-term or vacation rentals. You know, change the business model to be billing at different periods of time. You know, if somebody wants to do a week-to-week lease or a month-to-month lease, you can increase the amount of rent you get. Typically, the shorter the lease period, the shorter time period you have for your lease, the more expensive it tends to be. You know, a daily rental is typically more expensive than a weekly rental. A weekly rental is typically more expensive than a monthly rental. And a monthly rental is typically more expensive than a quarterly rental. And a quarterly rental is typically more expensive than a yearly rental. Think about that way. All right. So those are the different convenience billing options. What about timing? Using timing in order to improve the rent you're getting on your property. So one of the things is giving your tenants notice 60 to 90 days prior to their lease expiration to find out if they plan on renewing and what the renewal amount will be for them and if they're not going to renew then being able to start marketing the property early ideally at least 60 days ahead of the lease expiring and so that you can test higher rent than you think you might be able to get and if you don't get any inquiries or calls on that or any reasonable number of inquiries or calls you know within a week or two then maybe you drop it back down the tiniest bit but you have 60 days, you know, full two months plus, in theory, to be able to market this property before you'd have a vacancy. Now, one of the things we're trying to avoid here is avoiding vacancies. Getting that tenant lined up way before the lease has, has actually expired and the current tenant is moving out. Now, if the tenant renews, that's great. Then you know you've got a renewal. You don't need to worry about it. You sign the new lease. You know, sixty to ninety days ahead of time. You get them ready to go for their next year. You know, in most cases, I think rents will probably bump up a little bit, just kind of like cost of living. Maybe not to full market rent, but sort of like a uh, maybe a halfway of what um, you know we saw as a, as a rent increase for the year. That way, you don't get stuck five years from now with significantly below market rents. You know, you're kind of like increasing a little bit each year. But then, if they decide not to renew then you have this head start to be able to test high rents and test early and lower your rents if you're not getting the responses you need in order to get that property filled before it goes vacant. And then ideally, you want to be renewing in peak season. So schedule your leases to end during peak rental season. And that may be a little bit different depending on what market you're in in our market here. Um, you know it's probably in the springtime. Kind of like spring to early summer, like May. So schedule your leases to end during peak rental seasons. You don't want a lease to end between Thanksgiving and Christmas in most cases. So what if you have a tenant that gets evicted and they happen to have the property vacated you know, right after Thanksgiving? Do you do a year lease from Thanksgiving? No, you do not. You market the property because it's vacant right now, but you tell them that the lease is either a short lease, like it's a six month lease to get them on cycle, or it's a long lease, it's an 18-month lease to get them on cycle. But you don't voluntarily put a year-long lease in place to have yourself be vacant again in Thanksgiving and Christmas. You're setting yourself up for failure, setting yourself up for below-market rents if you're constantly having to market your property between that Thanksgiving and Christmas time. So you wanna go and optimize your rent. So sometimes you might have a 14-month lease, sometimes you might have a 17-month lease, sometimes you might have a six-month lease, although I prefer to do at least a year, but you do whatever you need to do in order to get on peak season if you find yourself having to lease a property at a less than optimal time for the first one. Then after that, ideally the lease is coming due in a period of time where it's optimal and you can just renew for one year at a time based on that. But get on cycle to begin with and then you know work with that, okay? So those are all the things with timing, making sure the timing is in your favor for doing that. And then finally, Renters insurance, and you might be saying, "Renters insurance, James, why is renters insurance on here as a way to improve cash flow?" Well, it's not an issue unless there's a claim, right? If you have a tenant living in a property, and something happens to the property, there's a fire, there's um, you know some type of flooding, there's a, a roof leak or something like that, and something in the tenant's property gets damaged, and they come after you to pay for their $5000 kind of like furniture, stereo system because the the leak was there and they somehow think it was your fault. Um if they have renters insurance, their renters insurance will cover them for the damage. If they don't have renters insurance, they think you're responsible for the damage and they're going to come after you. So by having renter's insurance and insisting that your tenants have renter's insurance and verifying that your tenants have renter's insurance, you are less likely to have, even if it's a false claim, right? But you're you're less likely to have a claim against you to cover damages should something unexpected happen to your property and your tenant now thinks that it's your fault and that you should pay to replace all their clothes or their furniture or their television or whatever it is that they've got there or maybe the carport falls in because you know it's gotten old and they had their car parked under there and it snowed or, or whatever, um, or there's a hurricane. You, know, you want to get yourself out of these situations where you are responsible for the tenant's personal property because your insurance will cover the property, your, your property itself, the physical building, but your insurance as a landlord does not typically cover what the tenant owns inside the property, the tenant's personal property. For that, they need a separate renter's insurance policy. And they're relatively inexpensive. Just the renter needs to get one and have one and keep it in place so that if something does happen, they don't lose their personal stuff. Um, you'll have insurance to kind of fix the property, but you will not have insurance to replace your stuff. And you don't want to have to make a $5,000 claim. I mean, $5,000, this happens you know, once every couple of years, which you probably won't. But if it could, I mean, I mean we could be talking uh, you know, $200 a month in, in worse cash flow by having a $5,000 hit if you amortize it over that period. All right? So in conclusion, optimizing cash flow is really about maximizing income whenever we can and minimizing expenses. And today, I think a lot of the ideas we had, there may be a couple in there that were a little bit larger, but a lot of the ideas we have were like really small amounts. And I think for a lot of folks, you wouldn't even bother with a lot of these unless you were really trying to optimize and get like, the most small wins on your property. I think for the most part, if you do the big things, you know, use the right strategy, get the right financing in place, um, you know, kind of do the things to make sure that your property is rented and rented right. I think you don't need to play around with some of these things that might increase it by, you know, $25 or $50 a month. Uh, Because I think you get to a point where if you've already optimized in other areas, adding these additional ones on there start to get excessive. You know, if rent was... $2,000 $2,000 a month and you've done a couple things to kind of bump it up to 2050 or 2100 or maybe 2150. If you think you're going to add another thing on there that's going to get you an extra 35 or whatever it is, I think you would be it's harder and harder to do those extra amounts. The further you get away from kind of like the the range of rents that you're getting, the harder it is to get those additional wins, additional improvements. Okay. So there are things you can do on properties you already own that will improve your cash flow. It's sort of what we talked about today. It is better, in my opinion, to take a more holistic approach, look at all of the different stages, look at all of the different ways that we can optimize and pick the ones that make sense for you and your particular situation and your particular properties. All right, that's all I got. I hope you've enjoyed this particular class. Have a great day. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Tucson is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Tucson that wants to help our real estate investor listeners,